Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. This episode of the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. And now, on with the show. Okay, my friend, welcome to 2010. And technically, this is the first one we've done for this year, but the second one to air. Right. I understand, David, that you are now a verb. Oh, jeez. No. <laughs> Well, you know, what's really sad about that is that the person who posted that on our forums didn't realize that that was not their, they think that was an original idea of theirs. And sadly, it isn't. My last name apparently is in use on certain forums as a verb. To go biedny on someone is to, to sort of give them a raking over. I guess in our, in, in our world today, what, what I would call just standard Inquiry, just inquiring someone about the veracity of something. Asking a decently tough question. Yeah, is indecent. Uh, man, and it, well, we're recording this the, the week before it airs, and in the last 24 hours, well, I've been called a lot of things, Gene. A lot of, a lot of different things, but apparently now someone has uh, dubbed me the Rush Limbaugh. Of the of the paranormal sandbox. Where's my four hundred? You're somebody who takes lots of drugs, who gets arrested because he has Viagra in his suitcase, and has been married seventeen times. Is that what it is? You know, the one time I tried Viagra, it made me fall asleep. True story. I I tried it once with an ex of mine, and I fell asleep. She laughed. She thought it was the funniest thing. I took it, and I thought this will be great. I'll be extra crazy, and I fell asleep. It knocked me out. And, well, I uh, once took, uh, by know. the way, a certain well, substance designed to expand your mind. Yeah. And almost every time I ever tried that substance, I fell asleep. Actually, that's pretty unusual because usually with hallucinogens, uh, you do them. And once you're in the middle of the experience, the last thing you can do is fall asleep because every time you close your eyes, the geometric patterns start. It's been a long time for me since I did that stuff. But that's I specifically very, very particularly remember that. So I guess we have unconventional responses to unconventional things. But uh, it's, it's interesting how people will say this kind of stuff without oftentimes, I think, listening to the show. This thing that people think that I claim to have the only viable answers to any of the mysteries we talk about on the Paracast. It's so funny, Gene, because anybody who listens to this show, I would hope the one thing they come away from our show with is this idea that we don't know what's going on. And that's why we keep asking the questions because we don't have answers. You and I both have our opinions about this stuff. We both have some theories about some of what's going on, some of which we talk about on the show, some of which, I mean, I hold back because I I have in many cases, just opinions and this is an opinion show. We we try to make it more than that. And this is something that I really think is critical. And this is the main point of this little preamble is that we should recognize this simple concept that everybody has opinions. But I think it's fair to say that some opinions are more informed than others. And everybody has an opinion. But, you know, when you go to doctors to get opinions, you don't you're not going to weigh the opinion of 
any doctor the same way. Doctors that have a track record of successful treatment of certain diseases, well, I'm going to guess, reasonably, I think, that if that doctor gives you an opinion about a condition that you might think you have, and there's someone who has a track record of successfully treating it, that their opinion would be more valuable than, let's say, another doctor who's new to the field. It's called an expert opinion. Well, and, and you know what it, makes it even more interesting? You know what makes yeah. this more interesting? A lot of the people who complain about us are the ones who go around saying they know the answers. Uh, Their see. opinion is the expert opinion. They know the truth. And they'll tell you the truth if you buy their book, if you attend their lectures, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, then, uh, well, there's no experts on so many of the topics we discuss. There are people who have read a bunch. Does that make them an expert? Uh, I Maybe. I don't know. Who, who's an expert and what do they use to, to make that claim? I, I'll give you a perfect example of this, right? My favorite forum member of ours Skyler, and I know that sometimes uh, I might call him out unfairly or too much compared to the many four members we have, but I am in constant awe of Skyler's intellect. When Skyler expresses an opinion about something on the forums, I really take note of it. And the reason for that, Gene, is very simple. I respect the man's mind. Never met him. I very much like him, and I deeply respect him because, personally, I find that his his approach to thinking is really clear. He's an emotional person, like the rest of us. We're all people. None of us claim to be perfect. I am so far from perfect, it's not even funny. And my closest friends will all confirm the fact that I'm one of the most self-deprecating people they know. To a fault, really. I mean, I, I constantly dump on myself. So it's it just makes me it makes me laugh when I see these inferences that we claim to stake out this position of having the absolute understanding and knowledge. It's like, really? When did we ever say any of this? Now, when we think we smell a charlatan, we call them out. Damn right. I think that uh, the the two of us are fairly decent thinkers. I think we're relatively intelligent as far as this world goes. And uh, I think that both of us being native New Yorkers and you know, people, if they want to bash me for this, go right ahead. I think that native New Yorkers do have a bit of an edge on people maybe from other parts of the United States. I'll, I'll say that. Does that make me provincial? Well, maybe in this particular case, it does. But I think that when you've Grown up. Okay, in now you're provincial what? and you're a verb. Does that mean you are a provincial verb? <laughs> the provincial verb's a new band. Oh man, I don't know. I just it, it seems to me, as is just my opinion, that we really are in a time. We're living in a time when everything is being turned upside down. Especially, certainly, one could argue that in this country, in the United States. Really, since the Reagan years, there has been this attitude that intellect is somehow a negative thing, that, you know, being intelligent is, should be frowned upon. To uh, be inquisitive about things is somehow undesirable. Where did that come from, Gene? Well, when we now have basically a president in the U.S. who is reputedly an intellectual. 
He's a constitutional lawyer. So what do they do? They say, he is not one of us. He must be a communist. No, he's a fascist. What is he? Well, I mean, and we always get into dangerous, dangerous waters when we even mention politics on here. You know, what is he? He's a politician. He's a lawyer, which means he's sort of a professional liar. That's part of what lawyers are, sort of like actors. You know, they're, they're people who have been trained specifically to recognize, to understand, and to, yes, deploy deception. That's what they do. And so you look at someone like, uh, like Barack Obama. He's this, he's that. Well, he's a politician, which tells you something. And he's somebody who sought out being president of the United States, which in my mind makes him a little wacky. I think anybody who wants that gig is already a little wacky. I, don't, I, I think anybody also who thinks that anybody would vote for them is even more wacky. I guess so. I mean, I don't look, man, I don't pretend to understand the mind of a politician. I don't want to understand that mindset. You know, I, I, I really don't. In, in the end, Gene, anybody who wants to make statements about us as, as people, I submit to them that they don't even know who we are. You know, people want to make judgment calls on us based on who we come across on this show. You're only seeing one little aspect of our personalities. That's all. And don't think you can know anybody in totality from listening to them on a program. That's just not, that's not really intellectually honest. You, you know the, as the side of me or you that we choose to put on here. We're sharing some aspect of ourselves on here, but it's not the totality of who we are. I recognize that sometimes you and I will bring somebody on the show and uh, sometimes we give them a hard time as and ask them relevant questions. That's what now passes for giving somebody a hard time in our society today. The same society, by the way, I just want to bring up for just a moment, another little sidetrack side tangent here. The same society that believes that somehow it's beneficial in the school system to level the playing field to the point where criticism is something that should be avoided. This is being taught to the youngest members of our society today, that criticism is somehow bad, it's counterproductive. We've got an entire generation, Gene, of young people in this country who cannot deal with any level of critique or critical input whatsoever. They break down. And this is the whole thing about political correctness in our school system where, you know, you can't single out certain student, students for uh for rewards, everybody's got to get a little trophy. Everybody has to be special. We're all special snowflakes. And I understand at one level the desire to teach young people that idea. But you know what? It doesn't jive with the way the world works. And what we're really doing is preparing, or I should say we're ill-preparing an entire generation to deal with the real world. Because once you let these kids out into the real world and they go to get their first job, I tell you, I've heard stories about young new workers' parents calling an employer to complain about how their kids were treated at the first week of their job. You know, how could you be so insensitive to my child? It's like your 23-year-old college graduate is your child? Lady, it might be your kid, but he's employee 12,471 and he's screwing up. What do you want? What did you teach this kid? It's like a, an entire generation of wussies, man. 
It's unbelievable. And is it somehow uh, productive? No. Are we seeing this reflected in so many different aspects of our society? Absolutely. Do we see this in the paranormal sandbox? Yeah, everybody's supposed to get along. And people want respect, but they don't want to earn it. That, my friend, is a trend that I have, on a personal level, very serious problems with. In, in my world, you want respect, you earn it. You don't earn the respect, you don't get it. It's that simple. Skyler, member of our audience who has earned all the respect, intellectual respect, I can give to somebody. He's earned it. He's a uh, man. When when he did that dissertation on that movie, The Man from Earth, that I recommended that our, our listeners watch, uh, when he wrote this dissertation on it and posted it on Scribd, I, I read that thing and thought, this is a guy who's smarter than I'll ever be. I have to respect him for that. Yes, indeed. We have an interesting guest, a very mainstream UFO researcher. Tell us about him. Well, he might be a mainstream UFO researcher, but the work that he's done and the cases that Butch Witkowski has looked into are absolutely, well, on one level, they're mesmerizing. On another level, they're kind of terrifying. And uh, he was brought up on our forums. There were some posts uh, to some uh, footage of him speaking at a conference. And so we're going to talk with Butch Witkowski today about his research work. He sounds like an intelligent, knowledgeable, diligent researcher who can't be ignored. And we have to look into his research work because I think it moves us in a direction where we can start to understand some things, perhaps, which is what we're trying to do on the Paracast. We're trying to understand some of the most elusive material available to humans today. And so... We're going to have Butch Witkowski, who's going to talk to us about the rather uncomfortable topic of human mutilation cases. Coming up next on The Paracast. And now for something completely different. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the Paracast is being brought to you by audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice and you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal about UFOs novels you pick it and when you get the book that you want just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices 
All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. This offer only good for USA listeners. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Butch, we have a really good friend of the show, Don Ecker, who's been on the show a number of times. And there's one topic that's come up on the show in, in our discussions with him that definitely, I think, makes him a little uncomfortable based on his research work into this one particular area. And apparently this, this is an area that you have some particular expertise in as well. And we really are thrilled that you agreed to come on the show to talk with us today. And, and that area are, is human mutilations, something that uh, is some, it just, it's a very uncomfortable topic for rather obvious reasons. And this is why we wanted to speak with you today. But before we get into that, standard question we typically ask new guests like yourself, how did you get involved in this area of research to begin with? Uh, actually, it was my uh, director here in Pennsylvania, John Ventry, who asked me to come up with a uh, presentation for one of our conferences. And uh, I, of course, said, no, well, you can do UFOs, or you can do this, that, and the other thing. And, of course, John goes like, no, 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 I think we ought to do something on abduction. Nobody does anything on abduction. Why don't you look into that and see what you can come up with? Mm -hmm. Well, being familiar with abduction, you know, I never really, really dug into it. And then when I really, really dug into it, it's, uh, it gets quite alarming. Now... When you say alarming, there's a video on YouTube of a presentation that you did that someone posted on our forums, mm -hmm. and um, there's some really interesting numbers that come in that come up in in that presentation. I don't think it's your complete presentation; it's the highlights of it. But you say in that presentation that thirty thousand people a year in this country go up genuinely missing. I, I was wondering if we you could give us some background as to where that number comes from, how you derive where that number is derived from. Okay. Uh, what I did was I went to the National Crime Information Center, the NCIC, which is uh, records all the crimes uh, committed in the United States uh, and logs them. Um, mm -hmm. Gets their numbers on how many murders and how many robberies and how many thefts and etc. Et so I went to the missing persons area and, uh, and just looked up 2008. In 2008, there were 778,000 persons reported missing. But you got to remember, 95% of those are pretty much found, and the causes for those disappearances are runaways, spousal abuse, mental illness, random demands, murder victims. Uh, another 75% are uh, teenage runaways under the age of 18, really. Mm -hmm. But there's pretty, 5%. Pretty stuff, yeah. Yeah, or there's, and then there's 5% or 38,000 that are never found or heard from again. So the numbers were kind of intriguing, so I went back to 1990. And I came up with 13,861,065 people missing, uh, missing reports were uh, filed in the United States. That does not count anything but the United States. Right. You know, places like Nigeria and Yemen, um, you know, they don't even count missing persons. There's, they don't have any records. There's no background. But when you take that and just take that 5% of that, you know, that comes up to 693,000 men, women, and children are never found in a 19-year year period. If you break it down by the year, it comes out to like 30, 31,000 people are missing every year that they're just never heard from again. They're never found. No bodies, no ransom demands, uh, nothing. They're just gone. They're wiped off the face of the earth. That seems like a very uncomfortable number. Um, and certainly there are people who say, well, 
all right, uh, you have that many people going missing every year in the country. Of that number, what percentage potentially are people who the bodies are simply lost, lost to the elements, lost to predators? I mean, presumably, if you strip away all of that, you're still left with some vast number of people who, and you're saying you look back into this going back 19 years, 20 years almost, um, that this has been a fairly consistent thing. Yes. Do you have reason to believe that those numbers are, if you went and you were somehow able to do a global uh, analysis of this, based on what you've looked at, do you think there's a possibility that that number could be uh, sort of mirrored in other countries, which at this at that point would take us into, you know, what, potentially hundreds of thousands of people completely missing a year? I, I'm just we're extrapolating, obviously, but... Do you see any reason to think that that's not a possibility? Oh, no, I think it's a distinct possibility. Abduction is a strange phenomenon, but, you know, when I started really looking into it, it really happens in Western countries, uh, United States, England, you know, English-speaking countries, uh, countries that are more um, advanced. There are very few that you find, like in Africa, uh, Southern Africa, uh, China, uh, and, of course, there's a political reason you're not going to find out anything. Right, right. But the numbers, you're right, they're, they are. They're, they're alarming. And, and if you just took the numbers from the United States and just took a percentage of those, take half that number. You're talking about millions of people a year. That's so bad. I'm just stuff. not coming up with an answer, you know. And the more, the more I get into it, the more it just, it just gets more baffling. It's, you know, why are these people, why are, and, one of the things I did find, though, uh, it, it doesn't stretch across. There's no, there's no border. You know, like it's not just like the, the poor guy on the street living in a cardboard box in New York City, or, uh, or the the um, the debonair and walking down the streets of Spain. You know, uh, it's it's anything, anybody. Uh, some of the cases, and there are very few of them that are being that you can really look into, because in in the field of ufology. Human mutilation or mutes is a, is a, it's just a uh, it's an absolute no no. You know, people right. don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. They say it's bad for the it's bad for the ufology community. And I'm thinking like, well, it may be bad for the ufology community, but it's a lot worse for the people who've been abducted or missing. Absolutely. Well, you, you, what you of course run into there's so many people, and you know this is a wall we hit all the time, Butch where um, people come to this table with their minds made up about what it is they're trying to research. And it's this classical dilemma where you're, you're talking about stuff where potentially Space Brothers concerned about our evolution and about our treatment of the planet do not appear to fit very well into the scenario that you're describing when you've got uh, human mutilations that seem in many respects to reflect what we see in some of the more anomalous cattle mutilations. Um, it doesn't really jive up real well with, well, they're, they're here to make us be better towards the planet. That's not the message we're getting here. We're getting a message that, in fact, we're a resource of some sort. I mean, it's sort of what it looks like. Um, and so let's, let's drill down specifically. And, and the reason I asked you about your background, Butch, is that in the presentation, you say that, uh, and I was just wondering about this, that you had been um, working in homicide mm -hmm. for a number of years. So when, you are, when you're looking at reports about mutilated bodies, you have some technical understanding of what it is you're reading. Yeah, my background is basically military and, and law enforcement. 
and um, uh, along with the research, you know, I've probably been at it all about 26 years now. And, um, you know, I look at a, an autopsy report or I read a story uh, or doing a little research and, you know, certain things pop out at me that just, I guess to the normal researcher with no background of any type would just go like, oh, well, that's interesting. But when I started reading something, I see that same thing popping up in one case after the other. You know, I'm developing a trend and then I'm developing a real scary thought here that, you know, I don't think I want to shake the little gray guy's hand anymore. I think I want to run if I see him. Hmm. Let's uh, let's drill down to the Todd C's case, one that is uh, one of the best known cases, certainly one of the most paradoxical cases. Assuming that a listener has never heard about Todd C's and what happened to him, could you give us the background? Well, the Todd C's case, um, I started looking at about three years ago, and um, only because it was brought up at a conference I attended, and I thought, geez, that's strange. I never really heard much about it. And then when I started looking into it, this thing has more twists and turns than the Grand Prix of Monte Carlo. Mm-hmm. You know, you get uh, a lot of the information you get, although there's some first-hand information and some first-hand reports, a lot of it's second- and third-hand party. And that's not really the ideal way to investigate anything anymore. Uh, Todd Cease was a 39-year-old white male uh, from Northumberland County, Pennsylvania, who on August 4, 2006, decides he's going to uh, go spot some preseason deer. Uh, up on Montour Ridge, which is located kind of right behind the residence. Uh, it's not a really big mountain or anything like that. It's more or less of a good-sized hill. Um, tells her, you know, he'll be back around noon, and he takes off on his ATV about 5.30 in the morning. And about 2 o'clock when he doesn't return, of course, the wife gets a little concerned and gets a hold of the Point Township Police and searches modified by the local fire department, state and local police, and volunteers. Divers search a pond on the property. They come up with nothing. About six square miles of them onto a ridge of search. The only thing they ever find is Mr. Cease's ATV on top of the ridge. It's intact, no accident, full of gas, and the keys in the ignition, and the engine's off. No footprints are found around the vehicle. Search dogs and cadaver dogs find no scent of Mr. Cease. But a boot worn by Mr. Cease that day is up in a tree uh, about 70 feet off the ground. No other articles of clothing are found, uh, and again, like I said, no footprints or anything like that, drag marks or, you know, uh, evidence of any disturbance or a fight or an attack by an animal. So the day goes through, the whole day with the search, and then uh, it's called off for the evening, and uh, it kind of resumes in the morning, and about 2.33 o'clock, uh, some firefighters spot something that looks stark white in a thicket of brush near the pond. And you got to bear in mind that this area is only about 150 miles from the, the Mr. Cease's home, and it's been searched and walked around many times by searchers, search dogs. You know, so they had been over that particular area and had not seen anything the day before? Many times. Okay. They had to walk back and forth in that area to get to the to get to the. Um, uh, Montour Ridge uh, Trail or a little dugout or however you get up to the top there. Right. And it was, uh, so the firefighters, you know, had to cut through this really thick, really tough brush, uh, and there laid the body of uh, Todd Cease, clad only in his underwear. Uh, there was a dead rattlesnake laying about three foot away from the body. body showed no signs of trauma, with the exception of a mark on his left temple and a lot of scratches from the thorny brush um, um, that he was found in. A uh, quick examination showed there was no snake bites to the corpse, and the snake was in the same emaciated state that Mr. Cease was. When I started this investigation, I had been contacted by a member of the Cease family who <laughs> really tore into me about saying that, you know, 
uh, Todd was um, abducted by aliens and killed by aliens. And, and I kind of told him right out. I said, well, I don't know that, and neither do I know the correct reason why he died. It, it's just kind of weird the way this goes on. And um, But I did promise him one thing. I said, you know, one way or the other, you know, I'll try to get as much of this truth out as I can. Um, the Point Township Police did not suspect any foul play whatsoever, and they were just waiting for toxicology uh, results from the autopsy, and that was inconclusive. Um, it took them six to eight weeks, um, and in the meantime, during that period, a farmer and some fishermen who were in the area that day reported a disc-shaped object appeared out of nowhere above some power lines, which do run across the top of the ridge. And they said they saw a light come out of the craft and something being pulled into the craft, which they couldn't describe. Then a rescue worker comes forward and he says, well, the FBI were questioning people in the area and asking them, you know, what they knew about the incident. Now, there's no proof that the FBI was ever there. No pres their presence has ever been confirmed. Mm -hmm. uh, the toxicology report comes back and it says that Mr. Cease died of cocaine overdose. From what the reports show, Mr. Cease had no previous report of any drug use. And when uh, another fellow investigator of mine uh, tried to get a police report, we were told the case was still open, even though we had a cause of death. Now, well, is that, my, is that, how can that even be possible? Yeah, exactly. From my experience, once an autopsy is completed and the cause of death is found, uh, unless there be absolute mitigating circumstances, that case is closed. Hey, neighbors. The old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. have Butch Witzkowski. He's the chief investigator for MUFON, Pennsylvania. We're talking about what one might call the dark side or the potential dark side of UFO abductions. Okay, so about this autopsy here, let's go on with this. Okay, well, what's not right is once, a, once an autopsy is completed and, and a cause of death is found, uh, the case is usually closed unless, like I said, unless there's mitigating circumstances like there are other people involved or are you waiting on other evidence from other 
decedents or something like that. But, you know, when we tried to find out, a, a colleague of mine, actually when he called the police and, and, and told, talked to them and they told him that the case was still open uh, and it would not be closed at the present time, uh, and if he kept bothering them, they would charge him with harassment if he continued to ask any questions, I found that really strange. Now, you know, we're going to continue to try to get answers for the family. Um, the whole thing is just... You know, the guy goes up on top of a mountain to hunt deer, or spot deer, I'm sorry, and um, he disappears. His boot is found in a tree. His emaciated, nearly nude-clad body is found in the, in the bushes that have been walked by, uh, by who knows how many research, how many searchers and police and cadaver dogs and search dogs. And that was another thing. When uh, In one of the reports I read, and I'm trying to get a hold of the guy that had the search dogs there, um, they had gotten clothing from the home and, and sent it to dogs, and um, the dogs never found any scent, even around his ATV. Now, the guy was on the ATV. It was his ATV. You would think there would be a scent there. And the condition of the body was another thing. Uh, and at, at that time of year, and this body would have been missing for almost 40 hours, 36 hours at the minimum, it wasn't bloated. It was emaciated. It wasn't, uh, there was no evidence of trauma. There was no uh, liver mortis. There was no rigor mortis, you know, where the bullet pools at the bottom of the body uh, while it's lying there. Um, and another thing we were trying to confirm was they said that the body was taken to Fort Indian Town Gap, which is close by. It's an Army reservation. And um, for its first autopsy, well, I'm familiar with that area. I'm familiar with the Gap. Uh, some of my law enforcement training was taken up there. And they have no facilities for uh, autopsy. I mean, best you could get up there would be a Band-Aid and some mercury comb. But so, yet this is where they say the to they, they confirm that this is where the body was taken for autopsy? But Yeah, the first one. The second, the second time was taken to a hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So we're trying to find out if this had one post, if this body was posted once or it was posted twice. And if it was posted twice, why was the first time it was posted at an Army reservation? Which has almost, no facilities to do that, by the way. Almost as if to say that there was uh, something potentially might have happened to that body in a place not designed for autopsies to prep it for an actual autopsy. Or hide something for a possible autopsy. Of course, that's the implication here. Yeah, and that's possible. I mean, and both of those scenarios are possible. Um, the only problem is, you know, first of all, we're dealing with the police department who's not going to say anything uh, because they say it's an open case. And the second thing is we're going to deal with the military. They're not going to tell us anything because they're just not going to tell us. <laughs> I mean, there's no rhyme or reason with the military, but there's you're not going to get that information. All right. Now, now, now meanwhile, looking at what uh, Butch has just said, what we if we go to the New Fork database, we find, and Butch, please confirm this, that indeed there were UFO reports made that uh, uh, that were called into New Fork that seemed to support what these witnesses said. Presumably these are the same witnesses that called up New Fork and reported seeing a disc-shaped craft with something, with a light coming down, pulling something into it. So it, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's corroborating reports with New Fork, a completely independent organization from any of this, that there was indeed a disc seen in, in, in the same area at the time that theoretically yes. he went missing, right? That's correct. And New Fork really was the one that um, uh, they jumped on that case from day one. And um, 
I would say to this date, uh, their their uh, release of the report back then is probably the most comprehensive, and they're kind of, they kind they kind of came up with the same stuff we are, where we have so many events of high strangeness taking place in this case, and there is no way to get any more information. Uh, the family, which you, you know, we can all understand rightfully why they don't want to be involved anymore. Well, yeah. Uh, but they still got a hold of me. They still contacted me. When I gave a presentation, and it was a very small presentation on this case, at a conference in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. uh, they had some people come to the conference to listen to it. And by the time it was over and I went to talk to them, because I really wanted to get their reactions, uh, they left. They were gone. They disappeared. <laughs> of course, a few things that are going to occur to some listeners might as well ask the question now. If you've seen like a TV show like Criminal Minds, you say, you know what? We've got this crazed serial killer out there who's doing weird stuff, and maybe the UFO or this high strangeness is all coincidental. So how do we assume this mysterious death is more than something that might have been done by some mad person? I think the boot in the tree is the real clincher. How did that boot get up in the tree? Where's the other boot? Where's the other clothing? Why aren't there any marks around the, 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 the ATV where he got off, would have gotten off uh, footprint? Anything. There is no evidence found at that ATV other than his boot, and that's clinging up in a tree. Condition now, of the body, Butch. Let's talk about the body because I think that's where things really get interesting. Because you're saying here, you've, you've studied other autopsies You've studied homicides this is part of what you've done professionally, right? So uh, obviously there were things about the condition of this body that were unusual. Could you, could you give us a, a rundown, a technical rundown of that? Uh, the body should have been, for the time of year and the heat, um, the body should have been bloated. Uh, if you've ever seen a, a dead animal alongside the highway, you know, a, a raccoon all of a sudden is the size of a, a good-sized dog. Yeah. Uh, the bloating, the fluid loss, the pooling of blood in, in, the, in the lower parts of the extremities of the body, it was just not there. There are numerous reports that he was, he was almost ashen white, emaciated, and then when you start looking at other reports, uh, which we'll go into a little bit later on, on mutilations, I mean, he fits the same characterization as those reports. Uh, the body, they say, uh, and this is, it's not quite hearsay because uh, even the one police officer said that, that the, the family was not allowed to see the body at the time of discovery. Uh, of course, they've seen, seen it later, but uh, just like Gene said, you have a lot of time to dock or something up. Um, that was very strange that somebody from the family would have been called over to identify the body. Uh, right. Although he was a member of the fire company, and they could have, they could have done that too. You know, uh, somebody from the fire company said, "Yeah, that's that's Todd. I know him personally, and that would have been good enough." But he had no clothes on, so or just had a pair of underwear on. So uh, his wallet presumably gone. Um, uh, he was wearing camouflage clothing. He was wearing a vest, uh, one of those like puffy vests, you know, nylon mm -hmm. um, boots, socks, underwear, uh, shirt and the camouflage outfit, and um, I don't know if he had binoculars with him. I would assume somebody going to spot preseason deer. Would have I mean, binoculars. When I did that, I had binoculars. Yeah. Uh, and uh, none of that stuff was ever found, ever. The only thing that was ever found that belonged to him was what he was wearing, 
which was uh, uh, underwear, and uh, one boot, which was found in a tree. Now, if you look at the law enforcement authorities' reports, what do they say to the families? What's the official conclusion, if any? The official conclusion was that he died of a cocaine overdose. What did his wife? What did his well? What did his wife say to that? Like, well, you 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 mentioned something before, Butch. Supposedly, he had no history of drug abuse. I mean, if his wife is being told this, uh, uh, is I mean, what's her reaction to that? Have you ever, by the way, have you ever spoken directly to his wife? Uh, the wife will speak to no one. Uh, the individual that called me, whose last name was Cease, uh, was a niece. Okay. And she denied outright any use of drugs, and she denied outright, of course, uh, the fact that, you know, she didn't want her uncle to be listed as some uh, alien abductee. For obvious reasons. I mean, they've got to be traumatized enough by all this. Yeah, and, Um, and, you know, when you look into the guy's background, I mean, he was like... um, he was in the construction trades, and he was bidding on a job to do for the county, and uh, it just, just didn't, doesn't seem to make sense. He doesn't fit that character of a drug user. Now, that has changed many times over the years where you can have somebody that's a priest, uh, a police officer, a lawyer, a doctor, or whatever, that are drug users. But usually in small towns, the drug users are well-known by everybody, and you know, they all know that this guy's a drug user, blah, 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 blah. But this guy had none of that background. Uh, also, when you're doing the autopsy and you're checking this out, you'd have some evidence of drug use, wouldn't you? Uh, sure. Uh, there would be damage to the inside of the nose. Was coca- cocaine user? Uh, if it was an intravenous user, of course, you'd have vein collapse and stuff like that. But evidently, this guy had none of that. And but and and I just don't buy the cocaine thing. Only because what did he do with his clothes? Where was he for almost thirty-six to forty hours? Uh, why did his shoe wind up in the tree? Why aren't there any marks around the ATV where he got off, turned around, sat down, did anything? Uh, well, where did his where did his blood go? <laughs> yeah, was no predator predator marks, anything like that. Uh, I mean, he wasn't attacked by anything. There was no fierce battle at the ATV for life and death. I mean, it's just it's just well, too simple. I so, mean, Butch, uh, well, there's another question that comes up. Presumably, if somebody has been out in the brush dead for 40 hours, one would think that things would have started to tear into him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And none of that was seen with this body, correct? No, and the dead rattlesnake, that's another thing. I mean, the dead rattlesnake is like three feet away from the body. He has no bite marks on his body. There is no evidence of any rattlesnake bite mark on his body. Yet the snake is lying three feet away and almost in the exact condition he is, emaciated and just laying there. Oh, boy. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Don't listen to the show late at night. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. 
This is James Carrion, International Director of the Mutual UFO Network. You are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Butch Witkowski. He's a chief investigator from UFON, Pennsylvania. We're talking about the strange, frightening case of Todd C's. It sounds almost like a cattle mutilation, except that it involves a human being. Well, here's a, I guess this would be a silly question, Butch. Maybe it's an obvious one. I don't know. An autopsy is performed on a body. Presumably there is a detailed report, especially a case like this where there are some anomalous circumstances. Uh, one would think that there'd be interest in, you know, how is it that a guy ends up out there for 40 hours, is, is not showing signs of rigor or liver mortis, is not bloated up. Presumably there was a full... Uh, autopsy report drawn up is does anybody have any access to that detailed report not as long as that case is open it's not so even the family at that point with this being their deceased family member the family is not in a position to be able to ask for that report while there's an open case i think there would be some legal questions there I would think that the family could retain a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that the only thing they're ever going to get would be the actual cause of death. So this kind of, well, it, 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 in your opinion, what would cause the police department to leave this case open? What, how do you explain their behavior with regards to this? I can't. I really can't. I thought about it, talked to fellow police officers, a couple of retired guys, and and we all kind of come up with the same thing. Look, if the case is done, if the post shows that the man died of a cocaine overdose, then that's what he died of. So it's, that's the end of the story. Now, again, without those mitigating circumstances where you'd have, okay, there were other people involved, or we, you know, we think he may have been murdered, or we think this, that, and the other thing, you know, then they have reason to keep a case open. But there is no signs of that anywhere in the report. Uh, the New Fork report, which you mentioned and I said was probably the premier report done on this case, uh, mentions nothing like that. And they, they tried to get the same information we did. And we, they came up with the same answers we got. Nada. Zero. Not talking. So, so you, you kind of at a point then where you've got this situation where someone's trying to cover something up here. I mean, it's kind of what it sounds like, and especially in a situation where as we said, you have these anomalous characteristics um, to the way the body was found. Uh, now, just because, again, assuming that people don't know about uh, anything about this case, they're hearing about it for the first time, what about the kinds of aspects that we hear about in the more, the more compelling cattle mutilation cases? We hear about removal of body parts. We hear about the draining of blood. There was the issue of this kind of scar or mark on his uh, on his forehead. Could you elaborate upon that, please? Well, they say it was a dark-looking mark, uh, like a bruise. Um, it wasn't uh, a hole like we find in some of the other mutilations or in the cattle mutilations. When you go back and you look at the whole abduction scenario, the abduction scenario is almost identical in every case, every case. Uh, there may be one or two things missing from it, but when you know you look at the work with Dr. David Jacobs and and, and those fellows back there, uh, back in their time when he first started looking at this, I mean he fits into nothing of that. Uh, in the '60s, when Dr. Leo Sprinkle really became abduct, uh, uh, interested in the abduction phenomenon, he was the only academic that was really studying and researching abduction accounts. 
And when he started putting things together, and then you had Bud Hopkins step in, and Dr. David Jacobson, Whitey Stryber, and John, Dr. John Mack, these are the people that started to put all this together. And when you look at their timelines and the areas of interest that the aliens seem to, be, seem to have on, on humans, Hopsey fits into nothing in this category, nowhere. I mean, he's just, he's an, he's an outlier. And, he, and, and trying to get information on it is tough because that area of Pennsylvania is a very rural community, very tight community. So, you know, how much or how little are people protecting the family? Why are the police saying what they're saying? Um, the, the doctor that performed the autopsy says absolutely nothing other than the fact that he died of a cocaine overdose. But the fact remains, the high strangeness of the case is, where's his clothing? Just the simple things. Where's his clothing? How did the boot get up in the tree? Why is there no footprints around his ATV? He drove it up there. He had to get off of it. How did he so, get in that, the bushes that everybody was walking by for almost two days and nobody saw him until right. late in the afternoon? So in a typical police investigation, wouldn't some of those strange aspects point towards something questionable, something like perhaps a murder? Is that why maybe uh, the case is left opened? Or do you think that there's a possibility that the case is left opened just to create a situation by where anybody trying to get gather more specifics like the autopsy report, like the specific toxicology report, because presumably with a cocaine overdose, um, and uh, we're, we are not doctors on this show, uh, we're not toxicologists, but I'm guessing that uh, a cocaine overdose results, the, the actual cause of death would be the failure of certain organs. Right. Um, you know, you don't just like get a great high and then die from the high, you get the you high get when, attack. yeah, like a heart attack or something. Right. I mean, yeah. you'd have you'd have some specific organ failure that would be the result of an excess of cocaine in the system. And presumably those things would be detailed on an autopsy report. So here's a question, uh, uh, Butch. I mean, how long can they keep a case open? Is it something that can be kept open perpetually? Well, look at the <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, pretty much so. Uh, look at uh, the Kecksburg case with the the uh, the flying acorn that landed in Kecksburg. I mean, that thing has been open six, since the 60s, and it's just now, in the last two months, that the government steps forward and says, well, yes, something did come down in Kecksburg. After all those years of denial, yes, something did come down in Kecksburg, and, we, and it was part of a Russian satellite. So, yeah, our, our friend Leslie Kane has sort of hit a, a wall with that whole investigation. So that uh, case is basically yeah. done, because, you know, I've been to Kecksburg, I've talked to some of the witnesses, uh, a couple of years ago, and it's funny. Half the town believes it happened. The other half doesn't believe it. One brother says it happened. One brother says it didn't. One fireman says it did. The other fireman said, no, it didn't ever happen. So it's just, you have this, in ufology, it seems like no matter what question you ask or who you're asking it of or what you're trying to find, it always leads to either nothing or a hundred more questions. And the, the cease case is the same way. But the simple things with the cease case, was, which would, you know, obviously answer a lot. How did this boot get up in the tree? What happened to his clothes? Just those two questions alone. Right. Forget everything else. How did the boot get up in the tree? Where's the rest of his clothes? Here's a, here's a question about um, corroborating types, types of incidents. 
does that area have any kind of a history of cattle mutilation episodes? Or a related question, what is the history of UFO sightings in that area that we know of? Uh, very little. Uh, there's very very little sightings. I have no cattle mutilations that, I, that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, but very little in the, in the way of sightings. I think last year when I just did our final map for 2009, uh, I think there were like six reports for the whole year. All right, so pretty pretty small as far as these things go, yeah. I think one of the things I also like to look at is repeatability. So we have this one case that stands by itself that appears to have anomalous aspects. But looking at the overall structure, are there other instances of humans found dead that may have had similar causes? Uh, not in the cocaine sense, but in the cattle mutilation sense, absolutely. I think uh, that's what we're thinking about. <laughs> Yeah, there are, there are absolutely other cases. You know, uh, in the 50s, in the middle 50s, when cattle mutilation really started getting reported, I guess is the best way to put it, in areas of Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah, that four-corner state area, you know, first they blamed them on the, pharmac the pharmacologists uh, that were taking, uh, the companies were taking and using them for the excised organs for the research, and then it was the cults were blamed. Uh, using the organs for their research, uh, I mean, for their rituals. And the and, uh, problem with those scenarios was that, you know, those carcasses were found in such remote areas, there was no physical traces of anybody being responsible for those deaths. There were no footprints, crushed grass, tire prints, imprints on snow-covered ground, no indications of man or predator near the carcasses. And an interesting fact is, uh, with a cattle mutilation, and I believe it was Linda Mooton Howe did something on it a little while back, a couple of years ago. A predator will not go near one of those carcasses. Now, there's a free meal. And a wolf or, or a coyote will walk right past that carcass and never touch it. And if you've seen a picture of a, of a, of a, a cattle that's been taken down by um, a predator, they go for the soft tissue, the stomach area. They get into the stomach area, soft tissue, take what they want, and they leave. Not the case in cattle mutilations. I mean, most cattle are found in, in relatively pristine shape. And then just, of course, the holes and different things are, are, are removed, different parts of the, of the carcass. And it usually drain the blood. There's usually no trace of blood found around the body at all. In that context, Butch, let's talk about then the, uh, the John Lovett case. Sergeant Lovett, um, which is uh, in, 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 in this lore, has to be one of the most bizarre things I know I've ever read. Yeah. It's just incredibly weird. And when I was kind of asking before about the condition of, um, of C's body, you have a, a situation here where this guy, Sergeant Lovett, I mean, his body, well, uh, you know, for the time that this happened, uh, well, let's, you know, why don't we, why don't we step back and, and if you could please give our audience an idea for what, what the details of this case are, because it's a really well, weird one. Uh, it was U.S. Air Force Sergeant Jonathan P. Lovett in 1956 was reported to have been abducted while on a search uh, for some missile parts on a recent range test in White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. Uh, he was in the company of his commanding officer uh, who witnessed uh, the abduction. Sergeant Lovett is on like on one side of a sand dune, and the commanding officer is like on another side of the sand dune. And he hears Sergeant Lovett screaming, and he gets to the other side of the sand dune just to see uh, the sergeant being pulled by what looks to be like a cable wrapped around his leg and being pulled up into a saucer-type uh, vessel. 
the commanding officer, will, of course, radios back and uh, they come and get him. There's no sign of the sergeant, so the 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 officer is actually placed under arrest as a potential murder. A little strange there, because well, actually, well, this this was a, a major Cunningham. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is his commanding officer. And he Not tried somebody. to save him. I mean, he tried to pull him away, but it just didn't work. Right. And then, uh, you know, the, the body's gone. I mean, you can see, they can see the drag marks where he was drug off, and, and, and like three days later, the body's found really not far from the abduction point, and he's been terribly mutilated. I mean, the extent of mutilation reads like a horror story with this case. I mean, along with his eyes, his tongue, lower part of his jaw, anus, genitalia, and all other, a whole bunch of other tissue was removed, and uh, the anus was cored out completely into the colon, which is exactly what they do to, a cat, to cattle. Now, just to put something to rest here for a moment, Butch, I mean, you know, there are people who will say, okay, we think that all cow mutilations are the product of some kind of a satanic cult of some sort that are doing this to, to cattle. But you're describing basically the kinds of things done to a human that, correct me if I'm wrong, technologically at the time, is this the kind of thing that had ever been reported in the case of a, of a murdered body? I don't think technologically we could do some of this damage today. I mean, when you look at some of the photographs from, like, the San Paulo case and and other cases where, you know, measurements were taken of the damage, the holes are one and a half centimeter. I mean, internal organs are sucked out through some type of instruments without damaging other organs. The same parts are taken all the time. It seems Uh, awfully odd. Sensory organs like the eyes, internal ears, tongues, the glands of the throat, lips. Portions of the lower jaw, sexual organs, lower intestines. And it seems like when you look at some of the pictures really close up, even the cattle mutilations, it looks like it's a laser type of device. It's something that cauterizes the wound with an extreme heat as it's being used. And the holes are perfect. I mean, they're not misshapen. They're not jagged edged. It's it's like you take an apple core, you know, and core an apple. So presumably, right, it's like a perfectly round. Well, but the thing is, presumably, if predators had hit a body... You'd it's a see nothing that uniform, right? No, no, that's a rip and tear. I mean, if you look at a, if you would look at a picture of a, of say a small calf that was attacked by a wolf. I mean, it's the the, the middle of that animal is just shredded. I mean, just mm-hmm. pulled apart, and you can see it was this uh, this ravaging uh, rage of of feeding frenzy that went on. Uh, with the mutes, uh, you don't have that. Uh, you got clean holes and perfect cuts, and I mean, they can take the udder the udders off of a cow in a perfect circle and not damage anything internally. There's a great picture on the internet of, uh, of a cow where the, 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 the udders were cut off and you can see the stomach and there's not even a mark on it. I'm not even a scratch. And all it did was cut through that skin, the thickness of that skin with, with something very precise, never touched the stomach, made that circle and removed that organ, that udder organ, and never damaged anything else. Oh, boy. Butch, we're going to break for a moment. Sure. We're talking to Butch Witkowski, chief investigator for MUFON, Pennsylvania. We're talking about the frightening scenario, human abductions, more on the other side of the Paracast. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. 
cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs, goldbug.com. So, Frank, what do you think about UFOs? I saw one once. I think they're out there. You know, what, what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're back with Butch Witkowski. He's chief investigator for Pennsylvania MUFON. Butch, is there a specific site that you have for this branch of MUFON so people can check it out? Uh, we have a website for Pennsylvania. It's uh, www.pamufon.com. I really don't post uh, too many cases on there. Uh, we do have a contact us page on the on the site uh, where you know if somebody wants to talk about something or they have something to report other than going to move on or they want a little bit of history on something, they can contact uh, put the information in there and it comes right to my laptop and I you know I'll get back to them right away. Um, we've got we've got a lot of strange things come through that already, but um, surprisingly from uh, from the area of the country up around like Totsies, never Not gotten much. word about him. Nothing. Nothing, not one question. So, Butch, did you actually see photographic evidence in this uh, Sergeant Lovett case? Have you actually w analyzed or looked at any of these photographs? No, there was. I, I don't know that there's even any evidence of that uh, case, other than in majestic in the majestic, majestic files. They say page thirteen, which is the only missing page of the majestic files, um, was the story of Jonathan Lovett. So, where does the information from this case come out of them? I mean, where is this case basically documented? I really believe, you know, some of these cases uh, are so bizarre that you can't have all this, all, all of this happening on a military base and somebody not saying something, you know, as in Roswell. You know, uh, you can't take a whole base and say, look, if you guys ever talk about this again, you're all going to disappear or something like that or whatever they do. Uh, it's... It's just not going to happen. There's always going to be one or two people that are going to come forward and start giving information. And and I, I think a lot of it on, on the Lovett case was that type of information. It was just stuff that was let out, as in Roswell, you know, and uh, as, uh, the Bentwater case. I mean, look at that for years. Everybody joked about that, that that was just a big lie. And then we have the English government this year coming out and saying, well, yeah, you know, it did happen, so uh, let's go on from there. Well, I mean, we also had a, a number of witnesses in that case yeah, exactly. Coming forward. I mean, uh, I just actually recently had the opportunity to meet uh, Colonel Halt and speak with him at length privately about yeah, that I'm, case. So, you know, first first hand witnesses, you never get better than that. No. Right. No, you don't. But you got to remember, how many years did Halt say it never happened? 
Well, that's an interesting question. One that hopefully we'll get to ask him about when we have him on the show in the future. Yeah, uh, a lot of years when he denied that that ever took place. Yeah, well, and, you know, people in the military, I guess, have reasons for wanting to maintain their careers without too many bumps or hiccups along the way. Yeah, sure. But yeah. I think in these mutilation cases, I mean, if they have happened as 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 they're reported, I mean, that... <laughs> Yeah, but they'd have to say everything then, wouldn't they, if they had to give everybody a warning? Um, yeah. You know, in, in, in 89, uh, Don Ecker, who was a director with Idaho MUFON, I believe, at that time, you know, had that report of the mutilated body reported near Bliss, Idaho. Right. And there's very little information about that. In, in what Don has said on our show and said to us personally, he kind of got not so indirect uh, feedback that he should back off. Yeah, he, you know, he said, when I read a little bit of his report, you know, he says that he, there was an absolute predisposition to repress the whole story by officials. Yeah. And then, you know, there's really nothing more that can be found on it. Best case to date is, is the Sao Paulo case. I mean, that one went by the numbers. That one went by the books. Uh, the, the, the people that found the body, the, the, the investigators come in, the forensics team comes in, you know. Let, let's step back and let's lay that, if you would, again, assuming that listeners don't know about that case. Give us the 101, please. Okay. It starts, uh, comes out of San Paulo, Brazil in 88. Uh, some fishermen are out on the Guarparanga Dam, which is just a man-made lake that supplies water to San Paulo. They spot on the shoreline what they believe to be a body. They go to the police department, make a report. The police and forensic team arrive to find, uh, arrive to find the butchered remains of a, of, of a man. The decedent is found with the following surgically removed. His eyes, left ear, inner ear, lower jaw, inner throat and tongue, there are one inch to one and a half inch holes in the following areas where muscle tissue and glands were removed. Uh, shoulder, navel, chest, thigh, testicles were removed, and the prostrate gland was removed through the urethral tube, which is quite unusual. Uh, usually everything's just cut away. Uh, the intestines were removed completely via a hole in the navel, and the anus was cored out again to the colon. The body showed no signs of rigor mortis or liver mortis and was unremarkable in any sign of bloating given the high heat temps of the area and the time of death was placed at between uh, 30 and 42 hours prior to discovery. No blood or any noticeable amount of any type was found in or on or around the body. The body was emaciated, showed only slight discolorations around its wounds. And um, one of the most disturbing facts that I read in the official autopsy report, which I do have, was two words, vital reaction. And that shows up in the autopsy report, um, I believe, seven or eight times. Let me give you the definition of vital reaction. Vital reaction is a term indicating a response of a living body tissue to injury. By definition, it can only occur during life, and, there, and therefore an index of anti-mortem injury. This is of considerable importance in forensic medicine in A, attempting to establish that the injury is inflicted before death, and B, the possibility of estimating time of infliction before death. So what that means is that this guy was alive when this happened. Pretty horrible thought. Mm -hmm. It's a horrifying, it's a, it's, it's a downright horrifying thing. Uh, corroborating UFO sightings in the area during this time period? Uh, there were a lot in the area. Again, where this guy was found, if you look at an overhead shot, a Google shot, it's like an island in the middle of this lake, and there's a couple smaller islands, and covered by trees, and it sits a little high in the country, like it's built up from the, the ground mass. 
So for anybody to get a clear shot of anything in the distance, the first thing they're going to run into is this group of trees, huge trees. Hmm. So really there was no report of any uh, sighting in that area at the time of this death. Now there's, uh, and I don't have it in front of me, but there's a book uh, from a now deceased author about what had been going on in Brazil with uh, these cases of violent UFO interactions. Yes, uh, there, there, there are quite a number of them. And it's kind of interesting how when you look into this, you find that there are certain types of concentrations of activity in certain geographical regions. Um, you know, separate even from the whole issue of UFO flaps that occur in specific areas. Um, I mean, you start to look into the activity in the last couple of years in Argentina. You, right. It's interesting how in 2009 there were people who said that, well, UFO activity was, was down, anomalous activity was down in 2009 compared to previous years. And I think to myself, well, have they completely ignored South America and especially Argentina? Where, in, interestingly enough, in Argentina, there had been a number of mutilation cases in recent years. Um, That's correct. Yeah. So you, you end up seeing these kinds of concentrations of certain types of activity, and not just UFO activity, but in terms of paranormal stuff. There's, a, you know, in certain parts of Brazil, there you just seem to have concentrations of this. And, and of course, you always have this this idea that, well, perhaps there's something in terms of the culture of the region, in terms of levels of education, that would facilitate certain types of mythologies coming up. Um, but when we talk about these violent UFO interactions in Brazil, we're talking about relatively contemporary stuff, not stuff that happened 15, 60 years ago, but stuff that's happened much more recently where there are things like photographic evidence um, and a pretty decent amount of it. Now, you, you, you're saying that you had seen pictures of this body that was found in the Sao Paulo case? Uh, they, they are available on the Internet. Uh, if anybody just Googling human mutilation, those pictures will come up. All right, so here's a question for you, Butch. I mean, all right, you get pictures on the Internet, but how do you then tie those pictures to the case? Is there any way to corroborate the veracity of the sourcing of those photos? Uh, yeah, a, um, an American reporter was contacted by one of the physicians that conducted the autopsy uh, report, uh, conducted the autopsy, and why, how, or whatever, he gave her a copy of it, and uh, it mm. describes the crime scene. Now, it's in, it's, uh, it's in Portuguese, but um, it describes the crime scenes, it, it describes the body just as it lays there, as the pictures show it. Uh, it describes the holes in the body, the missing body parts. I mean, everything is in there. Uh, and um, it's, it's the report that also shows the, the use of the words vital reaction. Mm. Uh, the, the individual, uh, and I just can't remember her name for the life of me right now, uh, made it public, uh, put it on a website, and uh, along with the pictures. And um, it's uh, something to read. I had it translated. And, you know, when you see vital reaction, and, and vital reaction is, is, is pretty simple in terms. If you would take a, uh, a knife and, and stab a dead person, the only thing you're going to get is a hole, the knife that the knife made. You take the same knife and you stab a live person, of course, they flinch, they twist, they move, they try to get away, and there's ripping and tearing and, and distortion of the edges and black and blue and bleeding and 
These bodies don't have that. They just don't have it. And there have been reports of cattle that have been found where the eyes are removed. And this is a, this one really disturbs me. It was it was a horse, and I don't remember where it was. I believe it was Colorado. Um, the researchers or the investigators are on the scene. They're looking at the horse and they're taking photographs. And the guy says, "Wait a minute." He said, "If the horse was on its side and the eye was cut out and removed like it was, the viscous fluid from behind the eye would have ran down the side of the animal's face." Okay. This, this horse had the viscous fluid run down its snout and and over over the front of its mouth. So the horse had to be standing up for that to happen. Hmm. So are these people and and animals being hypnotized, paralyzed while this takes place? Don't know. To the extent where they're not having the kind of reaction you would expect them to have. Exactly. To, to pull away, to basically create those kinds of distortions in the incisions you would expect to see from somebody or, or a creature that was under trauma that was trying to escape. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, if somebody comes at you with some kind of machine or something like that and they start removing body parts, you'd think somebody tried to, you know, really take off really quick. But some of the, uh, there were laboratory reports that came out in, in 1978, in March of 78, uh, and they were tested to, uh, and I believe Gabriel was on uh, the History Channel one time or two times. Uh, Gabriel Velez, uh, Valdez was a New Mexico Highway Patrolman. He's retired now, but he had been in charge of a couple of these mutilation cases, cattle mutilation cases. Mm -hmm. They turned over uh, a lot of uh, the anomalies uh, to, uh, like, the Los Alamos Scientific Lab, uh, which is part of the University of California, for microsco microscopic and bacteriological studies. And one of the things that was almost dominant in every cattle mutilation was that the liver and the heart were white and they were mushy. The, the, the organs uh, had the texture and the consistency of peanut butter. But yet in all the reports that came back, uh, the only thing that the, 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 the University of uh, California and Los Alamos were saying was uh, there was a, a naturally occurring uh, bacteria called cholesterol in the heart. But now if they found that, why didn't they directly investigate that heart's unusual color or texture? I mean, a person can be dead a long time, and when you take the heart out, it still, you know, resembles the heart, you know, meaty, um, red, pink, grayish in color. But these had the consistency of peanut butter, and they were white and very mushy. Physiologically, well, what would cause that kind of, and again, you know, we're not, we don't, Gene and I are, not biologists, nor are we doctors, but what would cause that kind of texture to occur in that kind of tissue? Based on what we know scientifically, what would create that reality? What they did find was that, the, especially the liver, contained four times the normal level of zinc, potassium, and phosphorus. Four times the level. There's no way an animal would get four times that level. Uh, the, blood table, the blood samples that were taken at the scene uh, what little could be found, were actually a very light pink in color. And they did, it did not clot after several days. You cut your finger and, you know, in a few minutes, it'll clot up if you don't have Unless you're a hemophiliac, yeah. Yeah, you know, it'll clot up in a couple minutes. But this blood didn't, was light pink in color and did not clot for after several days. And the animals found, a lot of the animal hides found were unusually brittle for a fresh death. Uh, one, one animal had been estimated, I think it was only five hours uh, dead, and the flesh underneath 
was found to be discolored, yet there was no damage to the hide, and the hide was as brittle as if it had been baked. So are they killing these animals by blowing apart their red blood cells uh, with some kind of burst of radiation? Uh, who knows? But, you know, the laboratory did confirm there's a, present of, a presence of anticoagulants in the samples taken from other cows mutilated in the same region. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Butch Witkowski, Chief Investigator from UFON, Pennsylvania, and we're looking into not just human mutilations, but animal mutilations. David? Were we talking about an, an artificial introduction of anticoagulants? And that's what they're saying. All right. So if, and again, let's follow that train of thought for a moment, Butch. If, if that were the case, what would be, what would be the, the reason for introducing anticoagulants into the body of a creature, would it be, would this somehow facilitate the removal of blood? One of the theories, and well, one of the facts, is that uh, cow blood and human blood is not that far apart, DNA-wise. So in a catastrophe, or you'd have a, a, massive, a massive amount of injuries to a, a large group of people, you could use cow's blood almost like during the war when during the wars when they used uh, uh, different uh, chemicals instead of actual whole blood to uh, just keep somebody alive till they got them to an aid station mm -hmm. uh, and and when I looked that up um, although there's not a whole lot written about it the three or four articles that I did read cow blood can be substituted for human blood not forever, but for a short period of time, which would get a person enough time to get them to a hospital where they could have a transfusion of whole blood. Uh, why are they taking blood? Why the tissue? And why the same tissue? You know, we're not talking about finding bodies or cattle with um, a leg missing or the head missing or, you know, a hind rump. You know, it's the same parts, the eyes, the nose, you know, the tongue. Uh, jawbone, lips, ears, inner ears, glands of the throat, uh, the sexual organs, almost in every case, even even the cases of human mutilation, the sexual organs are taken. Well, that uh, seems to be the, the, whole, the whole interest in uh, reproductive abilities. Certainly that's a recurring theme in so much of the abduction material, um, yeah, the stuff that's compelling, right? Because there's lots of abduction material 
some of it's more compelling than others. But in the stuff that's compelling, right? The, the use of those body parts for the human hybrid. So, Which, you uh, know, takes yeah. a lot of people to a place they don't want to go with this material. It's an uncomfortable uh, yeah. place, right? I mean, that's sort of the bottom line. And this is where, certainly in the realm of ufological research, you run into that that line that people draw in the sand where um, if you are the kind of person who believes that abductions are real, then you're basically accepting into the malevolence model, and that you know runs counter to the benevolence model, of the Space Brothers here to help us evolve. And, and this, by the way, I mean, there is always a possibility that what we're dealing with here is more than one sourcing of things, and that, you know, potentially, I'm not saying we believe this, but, you know, you could potentially have a situation where both those things are occurring uh, simultaneously and exclusively of one another. You know, that's a whole nother story, but certainly in terms of people uh, coming forward with stories of uh, malevolent, abductions, physical proof in the term, in, 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 in the cases of mutilation where you have now physical evidence of what appears to death. I mean, if you've got a creature that's dead and has body parts removed, certainly any reasonable person would probably not put that under the category of a benevolent interaction. Um, so when you have stuff like that, and, and you're someone, Butch, who's been openly investigating this, have you run into the same kinds of feedback that Don Ecker tells us he's run into where you've had people or entities, entities as in, you know, somebody tell you, hey, you shouldn't be looking under this stone? Well, yeah, but the thing, you know, I, my answer to that is, look, anybody can look under this stone. It's all over the Internet. Uh, I'm just trying to get it a little further. Uh, right. When you talk about uh, the, the human mutilations and the cattle mutilations, and then you look at the areas of interest that the uh, that the aliens or whoever they are appear to have uh, when people are abducted and they're brought back and they're you know they're 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 talked to by guys like Dr. Jacobs and, and you know desensitized and, and uh, interrogated. When you look at those areas, the areas that the, the aliens appear to have the most interest in is almost like a mutilation without the mutilation. It's the cranium, the nervous system, the skin, the reproductive system, the cardiovascular systems, respiratory systems, lymphatic systems, the lower regions of the abdomen, but they ignore the upper region of the abdomen. So these are people that come back and say, well, this is what they tested me on, or this is, this is what they did to me. And then you take that with that one step or two steps where now you've got a mutilated body lying here, and what was, what was disturbed on the body? The cranium, the nervous system, the skin, the reproductive system, cardiovascular, respiratory, lymphatic, the same thing. Only this time, instead of returning the person, that, that, that stuff is removed and the person is just lying there. Well, so this begs a question, Butch. And, and given that you've been someone who's investigated homicides before, let me, let me pose this question to you. If there were beings that were um, taking humans and cattle and removing these organs why would they then take what was left of the body why would they then return the remains instead of destroying them and i'm not saying that you know what motivates these things but from just a logical point of view wouldn't it make more sense to get rid of what was left 
I, I've had that question asked of me, I will say, at least 100 times, and I have no answer for that. No. Um, my theory, if, I mean, if I was doing that, mm-hmm. I would get rid of the evidence. I would not, you know, drop the body. These bodies are basically in plain sight. In 1994, the case came out of New Zealand. I'm trying to get a hold of the investigator out there. Had all the markings and all the evidence uh, of the San Paolo case, and and uh, terribly mutilated, uh, just like S- Sergeant Lovett. Uh, and then there was in 2005, you had the Betty Mazar region outside of Cairo, Egypt. Three families were found done like, done in like this. Every man, woman, and child was butchered in the exact same manner. And the police blamed it on a mentally retarded guy who lived in the area. Where was that case? Come again on that on that last one you just mentioned? It was uh, in 2005. It was in the Beni Mazar region outside of Cairo, Egypt, you know, kind of like the outskirts of the town, mm-hmm. parts of the city. Three families were found mutilated, and in the exact same fashion as every mute that we found. Uh, every man, woman, and child was butchered in the same manner, even the animals inside the house, which were like cats, dogs, you know. The local police, they just blamed it on some mentally retarded guy in the area, and the case was never pursued to find the real perpetrators. You have these two cases now that are coming out of of the Vietnam era, and there's very little on them, uh, but, (laughs) I mean, if if it's a made-up story, when you look at the other stuff, these two stories are are very possible. The first one uh, takes place uh, during the Vietnam War, and it involves a uh, Maxog group uh, on a mission, and they encounter a group of aliens picking up body parts from a firefight and placing them in containers. Uh, another firefight, of course, ensues, and, and no one really says what happens other than the Maxog unit is debriefed using sodium pentothal, and their memories are erased with a chemical cocktail. And now the chemical cocktail's wearing off, and these guys are starting to put two and two together and, you know, coming forth with these stories. But I'm sure they'll be kept quiet. Uh, the second case involved a combat photographer from the Navy who was dispatched to the scene of a B-52 crash in the jungle. He gets to the scene with the rescue. gets to the scene with the rescue team, only to find a B-52 sitting in the jungle with very little evidence of a crash, if any. Looks like it was just laid there, taken out of the sky and set in the gr- set on the ground. They they entered the, they entered the, the uh, bomber to see what happened to the crew, and the five members of the crew are still strapped in their seats, and they've been mutilated just like every other mutant. And the order is given to destroy the plane and the occupants inside, and the rescue team members all had their memories erased. And just recently, those memories have started to return. So I think we're going to hear a lot more about those cases. Oh, Jesus. Um, all right. Well, if we think that UFOs are here to help us, boy. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes... The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. 
Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have Butch Witkowski, Chief Investigator for MUFON Pennsylvania. We have a link to the organization's site at theparacast.com. We've been exploring the dark side of not just UFO abductions, but animal mutilations, all sorts of really odd and frightening things that indicate that the world of the paranormal is not a very nice place to explore. Well, we sort of knew that on lots of levels anyway. We've been trying to say that, and our uh, listeners don't listen, but maybe well, they will now. No, they listen. They listen. So, have, since you're a verb, David, could you possibly continue? Cut it out. Yeah. So here's the thing, Butch. Uh, uh, getting back to my question before to you. Uh, so these things are not whatever's going on. They're not getting rid of the evidence. They're basically putting it right back down in plain sight, which, which to me suggests, and I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are about this, to me, it suggests one of two things. Either A, they don't care whether we find the evidence or not. They could care less because they feel that there's nothing we can do about it anyway. Or B, that they want us to see this. They want us to see this so that we understand that uh, we're not in control of this situation. What do you, what do you think about the, that statement? I agree more with A. Um, they just don't care. I, I, just, I think they just don't care. And, and if we, we would come upon them, uh, what are we going to do about it? Uh, it takes you then to another realm where you have the group, uh, the different groups that will say, well, you know, there are so many different groups, I think 57 varieties right now, of aliens, and you have uh, this group really likes us, and this group could care less, and this group would rather eat us, and this group, <laughs> you know, would rather enslave us, but this group is going to protect us. So, and that's all, that's all man-made. You know, we know right. nothing of fact in any of those statements. Uh, is is there? Are they just waiting around till you know somebody lights the fuse and just blows it all up, or or is somebody trying to figure out a way to uh, extend life through uh, removing organs from animals and humans and trying to say, well, okay, well, you know they they have a real problem with cancer, but we know how we can fix this, and you know if we inject this into the genetic system, blah blah blah. Ah, it's 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 mind-boggling. It's just you can take it in so many directions. And, of course, there's some people out there have taken it so far. It's just crazy. I think if we stay on track and we just remain looking at the facts, I think putting enough facts together is going to give us some sort of scenario of why it's happening uh, or who's doing it. I mean, there's been people that have stepped up and said, hey, this is the government doing this stuff. I mean, they're, the government, they're out there, you know, because some, certain cattle have been found uh, to, to have been dropped from great heights. And, and, you know, all the bones are crushed and, and all that stuff. And, and they said, well, of course, it's a black helicopter. Well, yeah, it could be a black helicopter. They've had uh, animals found in trees. They've had uh, – uh, there's reports right now that I'm working on with a lady in England who uh, has really gone back. And, I mean, she's gone back into the 17th century where they're reporting uh, bodies found in trees that were missing for only two or three days but were completely mummified. And uh, some of her stuff is just – I mean, it's so intriguing that, you know, I could spend hours and hours and hours reading her emails. Well, and, that, uh, that actually, you just said something interesting, because I wanted you to clarify on terminology you were using before, like in the case, in the Todd C's case, where you said emaciated. By that, do we mean basically almost like desiccated, like where it's, you've had extreme removal of moisture? Yes, yes. Yeah, that would be emaciated. 
Now, the, the bodies that were that she's documenting uh, over in England, and this was all over the country. It wasn't just in, in like, London. I mean, this was all over the country uh, back in the 17th and 18th centuries. Bodies were only missing for a day or two or three, and they would find them hanging in a tree, you know, just like they were dumped there. Somebody picked them up and did whatever they did, dropped them in the tree, and they were, they were totally mummified. And, and the process that she relates to is, you know, she's relating... The, the bodies that are found to that of the Egyptian mummies. Now, I don't know what you know about Egyptian mummies, but the little bit I ever read about them, it, t- it took months and months and months to get a body into that state. Yeah. And and these were people that were only gone for two or three days, and they were completely mummified inside and out, but no animals. Well, and that's, uh, you know, in talking about mutilations and uh, this whole thing about the similarity between, let's say, uh, some aspects of blood, cow blood, compared to human blood, uh, one almost then expects there to be a good number of mutilated pigs found. If we're talking about things that are genetically close to humans, and I'm certainly no, among the things that I'm not would be a geneticist, but it's my understanding that... Uh, that David, are you genetically close am, to humans? I wanted to ask that. I have... Uh, I, I resemble that remark. <laughs> but... You know, you, you would almost expect there to be a good number of mutilated pigs found. If what None you that had, I'm aware of. Well, that's kind of an interesting quirk. I mean, that, that to me, that's always really stood out. Uh, I think what, in, would, yeah. what would be a way to go there uh, to find out would be to what would the pig's blood be compared to in human blood? Would there be uh, an absolute use there? I mean, they use pig valves. Uh, pig heart valves and and certain parts of pigs to replace organs that are, are dying out in a human. Exactly. So one would think that at the blood level there'd be a good level of compatibility. If you're taking uh, certain body parts out of a pig, then you know certainly those body parts work within the medium of blood. And damn if I know. I mean, I certainly don't know this. But but it, it's very odd. And I think the other thing that people then come up with. And, and there are clues. I mean, you know, we don't we don't have any answers in any of this, right? But there there are these little clues that that show up. And one of the things that's always struck me about this topic is that we know that we've had some success technologically um, trying to recreate aspects of, uh, for example, blood, um, artificial plasmas, and so forth. People, I think, will stop and look at all of this and say, well, if you had an advanced, technologically advanced being, why would they need to come and basically take blood? Isn't blood something that they could could effectively manufacture? Which I think is an interesting question, of course, seems to me like uh, whenever you're doing any kind of, uh, uh, for example, cloning, uh, you you have uh, you know your original source, and then you have clones and clones of clones, and the closer you get to the source, the purer the material is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always occurred to me that in the case of what we're talking about with this, that yeah, okay, maybe a technologically advanced civilization. And you know, here's the thing, Butch. On the Paracast, we don't even necessarily say alien as an extraterrestrial. We we kind of tend to stick with the non-human. Because we, truth is, and you said it before, uh, straight out, we don't know what we're dealing with here. Uh, okay. Yeah, the 57 species of, of, of creatures visiting the, the Earth, that actually is a piece that, uh, from what I can tell, was sourced with Clifford Stone. And there's no, nothing. She took that from the Heinz ads, 57 varieties. Of tomato. Sure. Oh, no, I'm sorry, of pickle. That's what the Heinz yeah, pickle. Is. And also ketchup. And, you know. Well, I don't know. You know some- 
Yeah, good. You have some of the folks out there in the ufology crowd that um, I see ufology has changed a whole lot in the time that I've been. Like I said, I did it independently by myself for a long time, and I was getting nowhere. I mean, I didn't have the contacts. I didn't, you know, I couldn't call Peter Robbins on the phone and say, hey, Pete, what's happening? You know, I can do that now. Uh, so I can bounce ideas off of other ufologists, and, and they can bounce ideas off of me, and or I can give them what I got, and they can give me a little bit of what they got, and, you know, we try to come up with a, an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but ufology has changed. Uh, it was at one time, I think, the ufologist, or the norm for ufologists, was the guy that stood outside in freezing weather looking at a clear sky with binoculars on a camera. And um, any movement in the sky was a UFO. That has changed. Uh, a lot of your investigators now are doctors, lawyers, ex-law enforcement, uh, firefighters. I mean, people that have been involved in unusual and usual backgrounds. In, in, in my group of investigators, of which we have, I believe, 33 now in Pennsylvania, field investigators, I have like three private detectives, uh, four fraud investigators, three ex-law enforcement, um, uh, military, uh, so, you know, it's not like somebody walks in with a picture and, and you know, we look at it and we're like, wow, that's really quite a picture you got there. You know, one of the guys will take it home and they'll just take, take it apart and say, well, it's not what you think it is. It's uh, somebody just shining a flashlight from the ground up or a laser beam. The investigators today want to know. You know, we're not buying the, you walk in with the picture and we go like, wow, great, really great looking UFO. We want to know what it is. How did you get it? What did you use to get it? What type of program did you walk it through? Uh, we had a case where um, a guy uh, sent me an email and he said he had this rock that um, he found in his yard, his field, the farmer's field, his field, um, a number of years ago, and he had sent it to all over the place. Los Alamos had it for a while, and and everybody's saying they don't know what it is, they don't know what it is. So this guy's walking around thinking, you know, he's holding, you know, part of Mars or something. And one of our investigators is also a. Uh, a geologist for the state of Pennsylvania, certified geologist. So we gave it to him, and he took it to the, UF, uh, the University of Pennsylvania the lab, geologist lab, and they took it apart, and, you know, piece, little pieces here and, and did spectrograms and all that stuff on it. And it comes back that, yes, it's unusual in the fact that there's some coal there, there's some iron, uh, there's some uh, phosphorus and marbled-like material. But they got it to the point where they narrowed it down and said this is only found in the strata uh, down near Philadelphia along some uh, along the river in a very small area. And he said, how it got up here in this guy's field in Lancaster County is just, who knows? How did it get there? Could have came in with a load of trash. Somebody could have got a load of topsoil and it just happened to be there. Or somebody just picked it up one day and said, hey, it's a neat-looking rock, but then they didn't want it and threw it away. The ufologist today is smarter. Uh, they're using more technology. Um, you know, we have infrared uh, cameras. We have uh, infrared uh, devices uh, to look at things. Um, and the Bigfoot people that are looking for Bigfoot, they've gone scientific. You know, they're out there with infrared and and uh, different types of um, listening devices and, and uh, cameras that they hide in the woods and take your picture when something walks by. But when it comes to abduction, you know, you're dealing with strictly a human element and where the individual you're talking to and asking questions to is just giving you their what they think happened or you know what they think took place they they can't say it for sure implants um you know i've seen a couple demonstrations with those and 
and Dr. Lear and at the X conference last year and you know, he had one that he broke apart when he took it out, and two days later when he retrieved it, or three days later when he retrieved it from the uh, cabinet that it was locked up in, it grew back together. You know, I don't know. It's a different world. Well, then, you know, obviously when you're talking about the current situation, you have this thing called the Internet that gives everybody a platform, which is both good and bad thing. You basically uh, have, in many cases, um, and this is something we're going to actually look into, is that uh, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. If you're, if you're doing things on the Internet, you can actually use technology in a way to create a completely fabricated reality that, uh, that is, is uh, recursive and self-contained and self-perpetuating. So, uh, you know, when we talk about, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear how people will talk about, for example, well, digital photography. It's not as good as film. And the answer is, no, that's just silly. Please, uh, the best digital cameras now are giving us what, something that was very close to the equivalent of uh, the, the actual useful resolution of a 35-millimeter film frame, the big difference being that we don't have film grain anymore, which is actually, in many cases, if you're trying to analyze something, the film grain gets in the way. Where now and nowadays, if you've got a decent uh, digital camera and you're shooting in raw file format, uh, there are certain types of attributes of the different CCD mechanisms that will give certain camera, certain vendors' cameras, certain types of "quote unquote" digital noise. That is, yeah. a, it's a product of the the actual uh, CCD sensor in the camera. But we don't have, uh, you know, and and you can actually use that in many cases to get a handle if you don't have a metadata available to you that's taken in the digital photograph, you can actually start to recognize some of the characteristics of some of the different CCDs and the different cameras. It's not quite the same as film grain, but the bottom line is that, you know, if you're talking about you, you, ufology today, certainly we have to differentiate between the availability of technology on one side versus people's willingness to use technology, communications technology like the Internet to fabricate things mm -hmm. being now more easier than ever, really. And well, so, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, add on top of all of this, and we haven't even brought up the whole issue to you. Uh, you, you said you were at the X conference. Gee, uh, what do you think of the disclosure movement? <laughs> Which is a whole other cat of words. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Butch Witzkowski, he is chief investigator for the Pennsylvania branch of MUFON. We have a link to the site 
over at theparacast.com in case you are a resident of Pennsylvania and you want to report a sighting. They have quite a few investigators. Now we're trying to look at the meta picture after we explore the human abductions, the human mutilations, animal mutilations, and now look at where all this means and where it's going. So, all right, disclosure, my friend. What do you think, Butch? I, I'm pretty cut and dry with that, and I, I, I made that known at the X conference when I was talking to a couple of people down there. I, I really don't think that it's going to be one of us guys that uh, makes the disclosure. Uh, I don't think it's going to be any from anybody from the government. <laughs> I think it's going to be some guy that's like sitting on his front porch, and you know something lands, and the guy gets out and says, "Hey, I'm here. How you doing? You know, come on in and have a beer," and calls a newspaper. <laughs> uh, it's not going to be like handing them some pancakes. Right. I, I think it's going to be very cut and dry. I, I, I don't think the government will ever come forth with this disclosure because, first of all, you know, the levels, the levels of, of secrecy in the government, I mean, far surpass the president. I mean, there's stuff that goes on and happens that he's not even privy to and never would be. Do you think, since you raised that point, do you think this is something that's often suggested? Before the president becomes the president, you have people from NSA, people from top secret agencies, they go to the president, they sit him down and said, okay, now that you're going to be president, you need to learn how things really are. And suddenly what they said during the campaign and how they govern changes as a result. Is the UFO mystery part of it? Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. The only thing that comes to mind when I think of the government and ufology is like, you know, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. When I was at the conference last year, uh, a lot of people thought that, you know, with Obama being uh, inaugurated, that he would be very forthcoming and this and the other thing with all the stuff in ufology. But, you know, ufology's past isn't as shiny as people think it is. Um, you know, people say, you know, we had people on the moon in, in, in the late 30s. The, the Nazis had saucers. Ah, uh, uh, yes. There's bases on the dark side and uh, the moon, and, and um, there's these... Uh, civilizations that have been found and 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 they've landed in 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 the United States. They met with presidents and they blah 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 and it goes on and on and on. They took Eisenhower to that yeah, secret the famous Eisenhower base. Meeting. And and uh, there was sure. a guy there that uh, was actually there that day. And um, you know he swore and declared what he saw is what he saw. He said uh, one saucer landed, uh, one saucer stayed above it, uh, almost like in a protective mode. Um, a ramp came down, the president and a couple uh, officers uh, walked into it, they were in for a little while, they came back out, and and they took off and he left, and, and the whole base was uh, closed down. And everybody was told not to look toward a certain area of the base. Did it happen? In my opinion, I think it's a bunch of hogwash. Somebody, somebody, you know somebody would have had their brownie out. <laughs> you just yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, don't look there. Okay, I won't look there. Of course I won't. Exactly. It's like, come uh, on. And Human the thing nature. Was, like you're saying about technology, every person walking around in this country today is loaded with technology. That cell phone, that PDA they got on their hip, you know, it does everything. It can get access to the Internet. It can take photographs, decent photographs, some of them. And and with the technology, and we, we've disrobed a couple hoaxers where uh, we've got a picture of this, that, and the other thing, and we're looking at it, and I'm going like, geez. That's not really what it looks like, and then you kind of turn it upside down, or you flip it this way or that way, and you change a couple things here and there, and you're, you know, you're looking at an airplane or a helicopter or, or somebody's boat in their backyard, or Christmas tree lights strung in the trees. You were saying about the film cameras. The film cameras were pretty easily to debunk, because, you know, when they messed with the negative, they left a lot of traces. And people think that with the digital age, that all went away. 
uh, to the contrary, I think it made it a lot easier for us. I mean, you know, you can look at a photograph and blow it up, and you see that pixel distortion where that 747 now has no tail, it has no wings, it has no engines. It's just this long cigar-shaped tube, and that's the saucer. And, uh, you know, the distortion is so easy to find. Disclosure, uh, they, they showed pictures of some stuff uh, at, the, at the conference, and I've seen some of those pictures on the net, and I'm thinking, buddy, if you're believing that this thing is for real, you should not go to a conference like this, because uh, I think there's a lot of people that attend that conference, and it was only my first time there, that are very knowledgeable of what they're doing and what they're looking at. And there's a fellow I was talking to in the hall, and he was telling me exactly how a flying saucer works. And he said, I'm right on the money. And I said, well, you know, what's your background in it? You know, are you a pilot? Or, you know, do you have some kind of degree in, in metallurgy or or engines or nuclear physicist or what? He says, no, no, no. He says, uh, he said, uh, I work at the coal company down in, in certain part down there. And I'm like, well, boy. <laughs> but Maybe it's the black lung that did it. He wrote a book. Well, yeah, but you know, that's the other thing. They write a book, and all of a sudden, they got all the answers. And I kind of stuck with my investigations, reading the people that I truly believe know what they're talking about. I've seen some investigators that you can read. You're reading their book, and you just know, you just know that they just they they're fed up. They've had enough. You know, they they're tired of the lies. They want to quit. They want to do this and. All I can say to those guys is just hang in there. I mean, there's enough guys coming up through the ranks now that are smart. I mean, they're street smart. They've done investigations the hard way. They've uh, used the technology that we're just now starting to use. The technology is very expensive. You know, when you look at a floor camera uh, or any floor device, you know, you're looking at six to $8,000. And years ago, it was the magnifying glass and uh, uh, the cheap binoculars from your local sporting goods store and, uh, and the brownie. Well, you know, a good camera, I carry Nikon, I carry five Nikons and three Sony Digitals, and you know, I have them all set up differently. Some are infrared, some are black and white, some are color, but not everybody can do that. So in Pennsylvania, you know, we, tr we go a, a little above and beyond what MUFON requires as we have training sessions for our FIs. Our field instructors, our field investigators are trained. Uh, we have uh, ex-law enforcement, fire officials, private detectives. Everybody's in our group gets a shot at training. And we get our people together. As a matter of fact, we're going to have one on the 16th of January. Uh, there'll be three sessions going on across uh, Pennsylvania, and all our investigators will be there. We go through the training tapes that MUFON supplies us, and then we go through our stuff. You know, and, in talking about UFO investigations, by the way, I am a card-carrying member of MUFON. Just want oh, to make sure that. Okay. Did you take the test? <laughs> if I took the test, I'd fail miserably. I'll tell you that right now. I might try. But, you know, I've had experience as a reporter. There is test. some kind it's fair, of... It's but it's You know, I'll try it. Okay? Then, of course, David's going to laugh at me. Oh, he failed. Ha, ha, ha. And then I'll have David take I'd the test. I'd never do that. I'm not a good test taker, actually. Okay, Sorry. you see, you've already gotten... You've talked your way out of it. Well, but, but Butch is describing a MUFON that I'd be happy to be involved with unlike the MUFON meetings that happened in the New York area that are run by a person who whose business card reads Angelic Healer and where they begin their little monthly meeting with a prayer to the Space Brothers to help us. Well, here in Arizona, they have a few things like that. But let's talk about MUFON seriously. One thing you mentioned as a topic of discussion, Butch, was the so-called misinformation war being waged against MUFON. What are we talking about here? It seems a few weeks ago, and it goes back a little longer than that, but I think it really came to a head a few weeks ago 
where stuff was being put on the internet that you know that we were a government organization and we were suppressing evidence and um, uh, we were all government employees. We were the men in black. Listen, I own one black suit. It's pinstriped. I'm sorry. I'm not a fashion freak, so <laughs> I need to get a black suit. And I'm kind of a little upset that I'm not getting any residuals from the movies. But um, we were accused of a lot of things, and. Um, I just I really kind of took it to heart, and I sent an email out to all our investigators and our members where I said, look, you know, the only people that are doing this are the hoaxers that we've caught, and not just us, but the various MUFON branches all over the country. When you look back, you know, uh, there seems to be like this group of ne'er-do-wells who are the typical stereotype wannabes. You know, they, they want to be the guy that saw the UFO, they want to be the investigator, or they, or they start their own little group, which begins with, you know, a, a, a five-pointed star and somebody throwing darts at it or something, whatever they're doing. And, and they take on MUFON because they have to take on MUFON. MUFON is the oldest, most well-respected investigative group in the country. So we're the biggest, so we're going to take the heat. They're going to come after us. And uh, a lot of my guys took it to heart and said, well, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> you know, these are, it's an all-volunteer organization. These people don't get paid, you know, to go out and do these investigations. They're using their own gas, their own time, their own film, cameras, their own equipment. So when somebody starts accusing us of being part of the government, I really take the issue with that. Um, I don't report to anybody. I get an investigation, and, you know, the confidentiality that MUFON uses with investigations is surpassed by nobody. They're a world-class organization. Jim Carrion has done a great deal for the organization since he's come into it, and he's had his accusations leveled at him because he happened to be in the military and he had to be a logistics officer. All of a sudden, he was a man in black, and he was feeding or hiding all the good cases. You can go into MUFON and the CMS, our case management system, and you can look up every report that was ever given to us. I mean, it's there in black and white. There's nothing suppressed. Uh, New Fork, I mean, he goes back into the 40s, 47, 48, I believe, in Pennsylvania alone. And it goes far past that. It's, it's, it's a sad thing. We're actually the ones out there trying to get these folks an answer. And in doing that, I guess we're not coming up with the answer fast enough and we're not coming up with the answer they want to hear. So, therefore, let's make war on MUFON. And when we really looked into some of the people that were doing it, they were hoaxers that were caught. Is and this something where the people who are part of the problem are trying to divert attention from what they did? Oh, yeah. Sure. Uh, you know, they tried their five minutes of fame in front of their friends and family, and we shot them down. Now the retaliation comes in the form of, well, MUFON's hiding this, and MUFON's men in black, and MUFON's government agents, and MUFON's this, and MUFON. MUFON takes all your information and then gives it to government agencies so they can send the IRS out to check your books. Give me a break. I mean, uh, I've spent about three and a half days a week working on cases all over the state and some outside the state assisting other states you know when i started like i said when i started a number of years back i kind of fumbly mumbled around and you know this and the other thing now my library's got like over a thousand books in it i've got videos i've got pictures i got so much equipment you know my wife's ready to throw me out of my own den because there's no room to move in it anymore <laughs> i've got eight computers going at the same time and and i, I watch everything the only way that we're going to get we're going to get an answer is if we get the information. And how are we going to get that information? We got to look for it. And, and the internet's been a super tool for that. And and our contact us uh, part of our our website is great because I'm getting stuff from people that uh, we just got one from an Air Force officer from back in World War II that we're going to go meet with, who says he has great pictures of Foo Fighters uh, uh, in the Philippines uh, during World War II, and he said they're only 20 feet off the ground. 
And he said, you can actually see what they are. And he said, they're just spheres with, he said, you can see no seams or anything like that. And he said, they're not glowing or anything. He said, just like steel balls. And then when you look at pictures of Foo Fighters that were taken in the sky during that time period in World War II, that's exactly what they were. It was a steel ball or, or metallic-shaped uh, surround circle ball uh, chasing fighters. And one side thought they were theirs, Japs thought they were ours, and we thought they were theirs, and the Nazis thought they were theirs. Uh, you know, it was just very confusing. But to have these people now coming forward without being asked to or... And I don't know if they think, hey, I, you know, I have this for so many years, and I should share it with somebody. I'm getting older. Um, or maybe I should just have somebody look at it and tell me what it is, or am I just losing my mind? <laughs> it's really an exciting time in ufology. And, um, you know, there's some, there's some really great investigators out there. There really are, and they've been around a long time. Somebody told me just a few days ago that Don Ecker was thinking of, of leaving uh, ufology. Oh, he, well, he has. retired several years ago, but he comes so on what? our show every so often, and he still participates in our forum. So even though he's retired, he's partly retired. Well, all I can say to Don is, come on back, buddy. We need you. We need all the guys like him we can get. I mean... The people that are coming forward to help us now, you know, they have backgrounds in, in psychiatry, in, in, in nuclear physics, in aircraft. Uh, two of my guys are fixed-wing pilots, and, and another one of my guys is uh, ex-state police helicopter, uh, Roto. Uh, so uh, the, the whole thing of the – and the, the ufology thing is way above the paranormal. Because you, in Pennsylvania, I think we have some like over, almost 100 paranormal groups, and, and they spring up overnight. And, and, you know, they watch the UFO hunters, and all of a sudden, you know, they, they're charging people to do this. And, and you know, move on charges, nobody, nothing. I mean, we go out there, it's our time, our money. Uh, the conferences we put on for the public, uh, we've had two, con we hold two major conferences a year. Uh, John Ventry, our director, uh, puts a great deal of time into those. We have some really great speakers from, you know, Friedman, Robbins, uh, Dolan, uh, and we have them all. And we try to put, like, a blend of the paranormal and UFOs together, and we found out that it doesn't work. People no, they're, they're really they segregated areas. People, UFO people don't want to know about ghosts. Ghost people don't want to know about cryptozoology. People tend to specialize. But how about Bigfoot possibly being uh, connected to UFOs? Oh, we have, no, it's, it's a topic we've talked about on the show because we're, we're trying to find whatever tenuous connections there are potentially between these areas and how it all relates to you. Now, I haven't found any. Uh, the point is that, I'm sorry? I haven't found any in Pennsylvania because we have the Pennsylvania uh, Bigfoot Society uh, located on the western part of the state, and they're a very active group. And uh, I, I went through sightings uh, and tried to put UFO sightings in certain areas where Bigfoot sightings were held, and I found a couple. I didn't find many, but I found a couple. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, 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 the Bigfoot sighting, um, in one way or another, um, gave some mention of, of a UFO sighting in the area. And the same thing with the UFO sighting gave some reflection of a Bigfoot sighting in the area. And um, it would be interesting to, to get a map and just do a pin map, you know, of, of UFO sighting and Bigfoot, Bigfoot sighting and see how, how well they correlate together. But do I think they're together? Anything's possible. You know, you know, it's like Chupacabra in, down in Mexico. You know, uh, they said first it was a wolf, then it was wild dogs, this, that, and the other. Well, Puerto Rico. Anyway, Puerto Rico is where they really started. Yeah. And Rico. And, and, and they, look at the, uh, they look at the bite wounds, and the bite wounds are, like, massive. Massive bite wounds. You know, like comparing a, a guppy to a great white. Uh, so do they have something going on down there? It's possible. 
You know what? Uh, We're opening up a whole new can of worms with yeah. a lot more things to discuss. So I'll say this. Don't be a stranger to our show. Butch Witkowski, he's chief investigator for MUFON, Pennsylvania. We have a link to the site at thepowercast.com. So if you live in Pennsylvania, we want to get in touch with Butch. He'll be happy to hear from you. And certainly they would like to check into cases that may help them find out what the heck is going on, as we would as well. We don't claim to know the answers. You don't. You're one of our people. That's it. Absolutely. Butch Witkowski, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. Been my pleasure. Thanks, Butch. We really appreciate it. Take care, guys. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. 